0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code CULTURAL. And by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. The Culture Fest is currently creating an Audible bucket list of books you need to read. Get one of those books free when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture GabFest Sadness as the Bread edition. It's Wednesday, May 28th, 2014, and on today's program, we're going to talk about The Normal Heart, the new HBO film written by Larry Kramer based on his 1985 play and directed by Ryan Murphy about the early days of the AIDS crisis. Then commencement speeches. There's been a recent flurry of commencement cancellations as students have protested the politics of their purported commencement speakers, and we're going to talk a little bit about speeches generally, our own Uh, what a good one consists of and whether a good one is possible at all. And finally, we've all gone in the last week to the new 9-11 Museum, and we'll have thoughts on that experience and the curation of grief in the third segment of our show. Joining me today is Slate film critic Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hi, Julia. Uh, And from Washington, D.C., our senior editor in the culture department, Dan Kois. Hi, Dan. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Uh, It's a real bummer to have someone as funny and and sprightly and fun as you on the show on this week of of very grim topics, I realized as we started prepping them all.
2: Yeah, it was kind of an accidental convergence of topics. We did not need to take on AIDS and 9-11 in the same week, but the two things happened to fall together. So there we go. Sadness is the bread of our sandwich.
1: Yeah. I've got bad news, guys. My commencement was interrupted by an asteroid striking the stadium and killing everyone. So it's a sad (laughs) topic for me, too.
0: All right. I thought you were doing no jokes today, Dan.
1: (laughs) My bad, my bad. (laughs)
0: Um, Let's jump right in with The Normal Heart. Uh, Dana, for The Normal Heart, I'm going to turn to you first in the venerable tradition of Steve, our fearless leader, who is still off on book leave this week. Um, The film is an adaptation of Larry Kramer's 1985 play about the early days of the AIDS crisis, uh, gay men who tried to mobilize a response to it and the indifference and frustrations they met. Uh, in the world at large as the as the disease was beginning to pick up steam. Uh, it stars Mark Ruffalo as the Larry Kramer character, Ned Weeks, who's this incredibly caustic, enraged, uh, loudmouth. Um, and before actually we get to your response, let's quickly listen to a clip of the film. This seems to only be happening to gay men. Buzzy says you are well known in the gay community and not afraid to say what you think. I can't find any gay leaders and... I call gay
2: organizations, no one ever calls me back. Dr. Bruckner, no one with half a brain gets involved with gay politics.
0: There's no room for criticism. What's your criticism? I hate that we play victim when many of us, most of us, don't have to. Then you're exactly what's needed now. Maybe they're just waiting for someone to lead them. I don't want to lead them. What
2: exactly are you trying to get me to do?
0: Tell gay men to stop having sex.
2: (laughs) Do you think that this cancer is sexually transmitted?
0: I think it is, yes. Can I prove it yet?
2: No. Yeah, so I guess my response to this version of the normal heart and you don't see it as much at work in that scene because that scene is fairly calm, but very early in this movie things reach a very high emotional pitch that they stay at the entire time. It's 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 hard to know what to do with a with a work like this that's sort of a a, he- a hectoring strident propagandistic piece of agitprop that's also somewhat dated. And I feel like this is an area, this is a period in the history of the AIDS crisis that in the last few years we've seen a lot of great documentaries about We Were Here is one, How to Survive a Plague is another, and then on the fiction realm we've seen Angels in America and so many things that have revisited these early days of the AIDS crisis that I sort of feel like there needs to be something new being brought to light in this film, and to me, the subject matter of it and the style of presentation felt somewhat dated in that it was hectoring an audience that didn't necessarily need that hectoring anymore. I do think that Mark Ruffalo does a great job with this somewhat difficult to read role of the Larry Kramer stand-in character, Ned Weeks, where he's sort of painted as this perverse hero of the gay community. He's both a very respected figure that people listen to and someone that turns everyone off with his abrasiveness. And I think Ruffalo is good at getting that across, but there's something self-aggrandizing about the way the character is written by, you know, the person who's creating his self-portrait that to me made his motivations a little bit unclear and sort of made him into this this singular hero in an epic that in fact must have had many different activists
0: organizing in different ways. I think you get even the beginnings of an inkling in that scene we just listened to of the sort of two strains of thought at the time, Um, you know, this disease seems like it's sexually transmitted, we should tell gay men to stop having sex, to try and be safe, to try and not contract this plague. Um, And the group that thought, we don't know anything yet, we fought so hard to, to be sexually liberated, to be comfortable in ourselves to to find love and to find sex and and to be proud of who we are, that to suddenly have this fear monger among us uh feels like a almost a bigger threat to who we are than the disease itself and that conflict is fascinating, and this movie somewhat flattens the non-Larry Kramer side of that story. I think you get a little bit of it. And I think actually having Ryan Murphy as a director helps. There's sort of a gay bacchanalia scene that opens the movie that grounds oh, Fire Island party, right? some, some, of, some of that argument. But I think that gets deadened and flattened a little bit through the rest of the movie. Um, and it makes it a little bit... Hard. I, I wish there was a stronger representation of the other side of the story. Uh, Kois, what did you make of the film?
1: I mean, dead-end and flattened compared to what? Compared to the how potent the argument was in actual life in the early '80s among most gay men, or flattened compared to the play?
0: flatten I mean, compared? Because, no, flattened compared to the Larry Kramer side of the story, which is
1: this is yeah, which, I mean, which
0: which obviously turned out to be true. It did turn out to be sexually transmitted. He turned out to be right. So you're right. Living, I
1: mean, that's sort of the, that's the, the way I view it is that I don't that flattening doesn't bother me necessarily because because he was right. I mean, and so. I guess I view this movie a little bit differently than you guys, in, in that I view it as more as more or less like the essential document of that era, like the essential dramatic document. Like *Angels in America* is a great play, but it's a fantasia as opposed to anything attempting to be a documentary. And it's true that this that the play is unbelievably self-aggrandizing for Larry Kramer. It's true that it's his side of things. Uh, it's true that it flattens the arguments of his opponents and turn some of them into caricatures. But all that aside, I mean, all that included in my opinion, I think that those things don't matter. I think that this is the one thing that people need to see or read or listen to, to understand what the community was like at that time, to understand what the gay community in New York. And then by extension, as the disease spread throughout the world was going through the total, Paralyzing fear and the fact that very few uh, people within the gay community were willing to take the disease on head first, and that essentially no one outside of the gay community was willing to take the disease seriously to the extent of of halting research and underfunding policies that could have saved millions of lives and so i to me I think that this the the movie lives and dies on It's a recreation of that atmosphere of fear and sorrow. And so whether both sides of the argument are like given great play sort of feels beside the point to me, because to me, the play and and Ryan Murphy's movie succeed very well in that. Did
2: you see the play on stage, Dan, in that recent revival a couple of years ago?
1: No, I missed it. I acted in it in college, though.
2: What part did you play?
1: So obviously I'm an expert. Uh, I played Mickey Marcus. The um, city employee who has the big breakdown scene at the end, where he gets really angry at Nick Right, played by Joe Mantello,
2: him. who I believe played Larry Craig played Ned Weeks, the main role that Mark Ruffalo plays in the musical revival.
1: He's also yeah, he's a major Broadway director. He won a Tony for Wicked, and before that, he was an actor. He was the original Lewis in Angels in America, the other great theatrical document of this era. Um, well, yeah, so that's so that's a great part um, that I was extremely unqualified to play, uh, being um, neither gay, nor Jewish, nor a good actor. Uh, so that was problematic all around.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry we missed that production. Um, <laughs> Dan, you're right. I mean, Dan, for all of Dana's and my political quibbles about this document, I think we have to recognize the power of this film adaptation, or at least I do. I found it incredibly moving. I found this to be one of the most searing presentations of this time, I think, since I read and the band played on, which is the great book about it by Randy Schiltz. Um but I've I haven't seen those other documentaries. Like I had I was left with the question. I mean, Dan, you're saying this is the one thing you should watch. But I've sort of had in my queue of movies to see How to Survive a Plague. Obviously, we all talked about Dallas Buyers Club, which portrays an interesting side of the uh, other side of this era, um, or a little bit later on. Uh, I'm not convinced that if you have only two hours and 10 minutes to devote to understanding this era, this is the best thing to see. Dana, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, I'm going to be a dissenter there and say I would definitely send people to How to Survive a Plague before I would send them to this version. I mean, maybe this this is just me. Maybe I'm letting my aesthetic... I don't know, per snicketiness get in the way of being moved by this film. And some of the parts, especially the part where the Mark Ruffalo character's lover contracts HIV and is getting sicker and sicker, I mean, there's some really, really tough scenes to take and some great performances, especially in the later half of this movie. But I really found Ryan Murphy's presentation of it tawdry. I mean, in, in general, Ryan Murphy, to me, as a, as a director and as a presenter of material, turns me off. And I felt that a lot in terms of the actual direction. In fact, the thing that turned me off of this this movie had nothing to do with the performances or the material for the most part, it had to do with the the framing. You know, there would be things like 360-degree shots that would circle around an intense conversation of people debating something for no apparent reason, you know, or there'd be like a long tracking shot just cause. And I don't know, I just felt like there was a lot of um, directorial grandstanding and kind of... Gilding the lily in a way, that this material was not allowed to stand and to be itself. And I guess that's something common with filmed plays, that because they tend to be static and talky, there's a sense that you have to jazz them up with a lot of camera movement. But there was something showy about the way this material was presented that turned me off.
1: It's funny to me that you describe the direction as tawdry when compared to like every single other thing ryan murphy has ever done and like every single shot in american horror story for example or nip tuck maybe this is it's like just a model of restraint i'm
2: sure i'm sure i mean maybe it's just that the ryan murphy <laughs> style is so in your face and so flamboyant that it, it turns me off especially when the material is this dark and this heavy
1: well so here's my case for this being like the essential document and julie i think that your response to it as you said just a few minutes ago sort of points to that which is that you felt as you were watching it like it was messy and you didn't really understand the politics exactly and you didn't think it was that dramatically compelling. But at the same time, you found it unbelievably moving. And that reminded me of what uh, Joe Papp and his wife, Gail Papp, said when they first staged this play in 1985 at the Public Theater. Um, you know, there, there's a great book that Kenneth Turan did, um, an oral history of the Public Theater, uh, a couple of years ago called Free For All. And there's a great whole section on the making of the normal heart, which is a real signature event in the public theater's life um and uh both joe and his wife gail who who basically jointly developed the play from this like seven hour monster that larry kramer turned in of course um and then argued with him for like two years about how to cut it down they both said basically when they were finished reading the draft uh the quote from joe pap is this is the worst this is one of the worst things i've ever read and and also i was crying like crazy so the play is like a dramatic mess, and there are significant problems with it, obviously. And Larry Kramer is not like a perfect playwright, nor is this a perfect dramatic work. But to me, what gets at the heart of why this play matters is that it's is that it it was the way that most of New York, and in fact, most of America became aware of the sort of personal ramifications of this of this epidemic and so when the show went up in 85 it was essentially torn from the headlines i mean it was dealing with stuff that had happened just 2 years before and and so the play itself became part of the story there's a big section of Randy Schultz's book that deals with this play and then also with the the stories behind the play, the the creation of gay men's health crisis and um and then the ejection of Larry Kramer from it. And so to my mind, the fact that this is a contemporaneous account of these events torn from the headlines and also from Larry Kramer's heart really makes this. A more valuable thing to see, even if it's not as beautifully perfect and gem like an aesthetic object as How to Survive a Plague, which is a legitimately amazing documentary.
0: Yeah, it made me wish that somebody had made this, made a movie of it then. Like, if I'm going to appreciate it as a document of the moment. I wish it were more a document of the moment because I felt one thing that complicates this, reading this now, this 2014 production of this as a document of the early 1980s, is that so much of the last 20, 30 years of gay politics is layered into it. And and in the current gay community, there's still conflict and discussion and and division around the recent strategy of using gay marriage as the key vehicle through which to fight for gay rights. And it's been wildly successful, massively successful. I mean. When Frank Rich reviewed this play in 1985, he wasn't allowed to use the word gay in the New York Times. When you think about how far wow. we've come, it's amazing, right? But um the, the the conflict is still there between the notion that that you have to present gay love as tameable, as as you know, just sort of the the gay version of the same marriage that everybody has always wanted, and there are people within the gay community who feel like that. Uh, is restricting and and compresses and and deflates some of the things that were fascinating and non-normative about about being gay that were interesting and complicated and different um and and i i think with this movie which concludes with a marriage which concludes with a, you know a bunch of gay couples dancing cheek to cheek and something that is both a hopeful vision of the future and also totally ominous because you think this is still 1983 half of this room is probably going to die. It it just, it it complicates your argument that this should be a primary document of the time because it's so infused with today's politics as well.
1: I mean, I don't know that that's there in the text. I think that's there in our reading necessarily. I mean, it's interesting to me to think about how this is being how this movie particular is being responded to by especially young gay men. Brian Lauder And June Thomas had a really interesting back and forth on uh, Howard Slate's gay blog um, about the movie. And reading Brian, who's a young gay man, um, born...
0: 87, he says. 87?
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So, anyways, but so, you know, reading him made me feel both sort of glad that the world has moved on to the point where many of the concerns at play in this show are no longer at issue at all. It is not hard to get the New York Times to say the word gay. It is not hard to get the administration to deal with gay issues. It is not hard, in fact, even to get funding for AIDS research at this. Well, it's probably harder now than it was 10 years ago. But it also made me sad that Brian and and by his claim, many of his cohort in that age bracket and sort of the millennial gay age bracket view this specific fight as essentially not that relevant to them. Um, not that relevant to their lives. Because I feel like way more than the marriage fight, which has been tremendously politically successful in changing laws around the country and in changing some attitudes, I think the Larry Kramer fight over AIDS in the 80s that started with gay men's health crisis and then moved on to ACT UP starting in 1987 was just as important or way more important in putting the lives of gay men in the vision of the average American and forcing Americans to come to a reckoning as to whether they actually thought that the lives of these men were worth less than those of everyone else. And I thought that was that was the real triumph of this era. That was the real accomplishment of this era, which rivals anything I feel like that the gay marriage struggle has done.
0: All right. Well, the film is The Normal Heart on HBO. I think Dan and I would recommend that you check it out, Dana. How to Survive a Plague. (laughs) All right. Or, Or see the documentary How to Survive a Plague instead. Now is the moment in our show when we hear from our sponsor. And our first sponsor this week is a new one, which I am very excited about, especially because Father's Day is coming up. Our sponsor is Harry's. Harry's is the new internet company that will send you razors in the mail. They have solved a problem that I hadn't really noticed. It was like one of those annoyances of modern life that you almost aren't even aware of until you realize there's a solution, which is that razors are ugly, stupid, expensive, and often hard to get because they sometimes keep them behind those little plastic cases at the drugstore and then you have to get someone to open. It's like the work you have to go through to get like weird, ugly plastic razor blades is onerous. It's an onerousness that I had not observed. But there is an easier way, which is to sign up for Harry's. And they will send you an elegant razor in the mail, along with cheap blades. It's a subscription service, so they'll send it to you regularly. And then you just have nice stuff to shave with, and you don't have to deal with worrying about it. Um, I have a sample kit from them. My husband checked it out. He thought it was much superior to his usual shaving accoutrement. And um, it's cheap. It's cheap and it doesn't feel cheap. The razor is like super hefty. It's one of those things that has like a nice heft in your hand. So it's just one of those very annoying ordinary experiences, which is that it takes a lot of time and too much money to get shaving equipment. And Harry sets out to solve that problem.
2: It seems sort of like diapers, right? You live in the era of people getting online diapers. I was just slightly before that. And now it's just a whole new world out there. You don't have to make those diaper runs in the middle of the night. If
0: razors can move up into that category. Literally the only diaper run we went on, my husband went out in the snow and he like slipped on the sidewalk and literally broke his scapula, which is like your wing bone. He fell on a metal grate. So don't don't ever go to the drugstore. He needs to be a spokesman for (laughs) diapers.com. Well, and Harry's, right? He's, um, yeah, basically you should just stay home. And and order stuff uh, and order stuff. And among the things you should order is a shaving kit from Harry's. Um, it's shipped to your door. It feels like a razor that your dad would have in a good way. It has a nice silver haft. It feels like it will endure. It's not covered with useless plastic goo gauze. And if you spend fifteen bucks, you'll get a set that includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream shipped to your door. And you can reorder the blades; they're cheaper than the usual ones you can get. And you can go from there. It's also a great Father's Day gift. Uh, for your dad. If he did not, in fact, have a razor that seems like a razor your dad would have, you can give him that razor yourself. Uh, Go to harrys.com and use the promo code CULTURAL to save $5 off your first purchase. We thank Harry's for their support. All right, moving on to our next segment. Chris, can we get a little pomp and circumstance in here? Commencement speeches. Uh, This is the time of year, every year, when commencement speeches are in the news, because some chunk of us, I don't know what the percentage is, 5%, 10%, have to go see somebody graduate from something, or in fact graduate from something. Uh, We gather with classmates, we see loved ones do so, and then somebody gets up in front of a podium, possibly wearing a gown, and gives... Some kind of speech. A senior streaks. Everybody throws their tasseled hat. In Somebody's here. protesting something. Uh, There's a beach ball. Platitudes are delivered. Somebody put like googly numbers on top of their mortarboard saying what year it was. Ta-da! It's graduation time. Uh, the recent graduation speeches, commencement speeches, have burst into the news. This year has been a wave of protests and withdrawals. Uh, the one that got the most buzz was Christine Lagarde, who's the head of the IMF, was scheduled to speak at Smith. But students protested uh, disapproving of some of the policies of the IMF and its work in developing countries. And eventually, the protests gathered so much momentum that Christine Lagarde withdrew. Uh, and instead, they hired Ruth Simmons to come speak, which, as I believe Cathy O'Neill pointed out on the gist, you know, Ruth Simmons was on the board of Goldman during the financial crisis. So no matter what you who you sign up for, they probably have something in their resume that somebody could object to. So there's been a bit of sturm and drang about students and their unwillingness to sit down and listen to ideas that aren't necessarily their own. Uh, and I'm curious for your guys' take on that, and then also a little bit more generally to talk about the commencement speeches of a form. But, but first, let's start with these protesters. Are you Team Lagarde or Team Smith protesters? Dana?
2: I think I think from what I know of that scandal, I would say I'm Team Lagarde. I mean, to my surprise, you know, I, 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 they they may have legitimate objections to the actions of the IMF, but I think if an all-women's college wants to get an extremely powerful woman on the world stage onto their podium to talk at commencement, they may have to put up with some, as you say, elements in her resume that don't jibe with the ideology of every student at Smith College. I think if she had, you know, for example, performed some sort of offensive, you know, public. Act. I mean, I think somebody else was kicked out off of a, a commencement speech because, you know, they, it was discovered that they had made all these racist, homophobic comments or possibly fired people for that reason. And I think then you're in a different zone. But if it's just that the person is politically powerful and has therefore had their fingers in some something political or economic that you don't agree with, that's starting to push it. Kois, where are you? Team Lagarde?
1: Team Smith? I'm Team Lagarde, but I'm also Team feeling like... Uh, The commencement speakers at colleges where students have applied pressure, then yelling at them for doing that at commencement, as the president of Swarthmore, for example, did, um, is like a little bit tacky. Like, I feel like the, the whole point of this is that commencement is supposed to be we want the commencement to be sort of above this issue, like let someone come in and deliver their platitudes. Maybe you will learn something from them. Maybe you will hate them. Maybe you will protest either way it's going to be fine then using your bully pulpit to yell at the students for being immature is like sort of be, you sort of escaped the the point has sort of escaped you
0: oh why not i don't know it's your last moment to instruct them and i feel like the whole <laughs> the whole the whole point or the whole issue at the heart of these protests to me or the thing that galls me about it is, you know, there is this sense, the common complaint, that higher education has become more of a consumer service where it's all about pleasing the students and giving them what they want. And,
2: and the parents, of course, you got to have somebody fancy at the commencement so the parents feel like their dollars are well spent.
1: And it's, But those uh, are in opposition. That's the problem is the parents want Christine, uh, they want Christine Lagarde, but the students uh, want to rebel against their parents and the university and they don't want her.
0: All right. Well, I think we're all sufficiently agreed on this issue that perhaps we should move on in general to the subject of commencement speeches. Dan, who spoke at your commencement? How hungover were you? And what did you make of the whole thing?
1: Uh, Seamus Heaney spoke. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, It was a good one. There were no protests about Seamus Heaney. Um, I guess he had not yet issued his translation of Beowulf, so no uh, old English scholars could take issue with it. Did he have a Uh, mellifluous
2: Irish accent?
1: He, as far as I can remember, in fact, that's the only thing I remember is his <laughs> mellifluous Irish accent. I don't remember any of the words he said. Uh, I don't remember anything else about it other than that it was totally unobjectionable and lovely and very lulling. It was a sunny day. We were out in Keenan Stadium at the University of North Carolina, and uh, I dozed off on a number of occasions. It was, seemed great.
0: It's so kind. A the mark of a good commencement speech is that it's soothing and lulling to doze to, it basically has a lot in common with a
1: lullaby. I feel like all of us in that stadium were pretty tired at that point, and <laughs> so that was that was nice. It was nice. I thought.
2: Dana, who spoke at yours? Our speaker was Gary Trudeau. Who Another good one. Yeah, looking back, that seems like a great speaker. But I remember feeling really disappointed we got Gary Trudeau because the previous year it had Meryl Streep. And <laughs> I didn't go to that graduation. I think I had to already be gone at that point or some, something. I had missed Meryl Streep's speech the, the year before. So Gary Trudeau sort of seemed like, you know, a bad, bad second choice to me. But I don't remember a word he said. And I think there's just so much going on at graduation for the students that probably, unless you know, you really have just a, a shining piece of oratory that will live in eternity, you don't pay much attention to what the commencement speaker is saying. Maybe the parents and the guests and the faculty are paying more attention, but I feel like most of the students, between whatever they were doing the night before and the fact that they're packing up their dorm room, that's what I mainly remember about my graduation was just having a horrible new perm <laughs> <laughs> and feeling really worried about having to go pack everything
0: up in crates and, and get it out in time.
1: Julia, it, who did you have?
0: There were a couple different speakers, but the one I remember best is a man named Gustavo Gutierrez, who's a Peruvian priest who was basically one of the founders of liberation theology. And it was a harangue. I mean, I still remember it. (laughs) He yelled at all of us, basically, and was like, you privileged snots, you better do something good with your lives or else you're a stupid waste of money, resources, and time. (laughs) He said it more nicely than this, but it was, like, vehement and forceful. uh, And I I felt uh, charged— with import and purpose, uh, and as you can see now on this cultural podcast, I'm making lives better every day. No, I mean I, it. It, uh, it was it was great. I liked. I mean, getting. so that's
1: great. I like liked so... getting yelled
0: at. I thought it was great. Right. I, I did not. Um, I would say journalism is good work, but not the most direct good work you can do in the world. Um, and I sometimes think about that, and I often think about Gustavo Gutierrez when I do. Although I did have, I mean, to, I did have to Google his name um, before yeah. the segment. I remembered being yelled at by a liberation theologist, but, but not which one specifically. <laughs>
2: That's a feeling so that stays clearly with you. Like-
1: Clearly, so like if if the trend is away from the say Christine Lagarde's on one side and the Gustavo Gutierrez's Gutierrez's on the other side, because surely he would also engender protest of some sort—not liberal protest, maybe, but but conservative protest—we're going to end up with graduation speakers like the one who my poor brother-in-law. Had at his graduation, uh, it was the winter graduation, not the spring graduation. The winter graduation from the University of Maryland, and they had Boomer Esiason. Boomer Esiason was their graduation speaker, and it was so awful. Everyone was so depressed. Clearly, it was a bummer for everyone there that this is what they'd been reduced to. I'm sorry, but, like, I don't know who that
2: is. Who's Boomer? He, he is a
1: ex Cincinnati Bengals quarterback and current NFL analyst.
0: And so, what did he say?
1: Nothing. He said like. Go team. Like, he said nothing. He said nothing. And so it's like it was, you know, it's like so I feel like the protest against anyone possibly interesting is just going to lead you down the path of boomer size then eventually.
0: Which is trouble because the form itself has a tendency to make interesting people boring because yes. – um, even even the smartest and most scintillating minds get reduced into this format that's unfamiliar, a very wide-ranging, distracted, hungover audience with logistical concerns about returning keys to the dorm committee or whatever. Um, and the moment, you know, a big life transition, you're officially an adult, go forth and do good with what you have learned. It's it's hard to say something fresh and interesting about that. So, yeah, it. it part of me wonders if we should abolish commencement speeches at all. Um, but, but you got to sit there and do something to make it feel like something happened. So nobody's in a good boat.
1: Yes, the format can really trip up even really great writers like uh, my boss, for example, David Plotz, who with his wife, Hannah Rosen, did the commencement speech last week at Ripon College in southeast Wisconsin, despite the fact that Plotz is a known panda hater. They did not rescind the invitation, but we're going to post the entire speech for members for Slate Plus members on the Slate Plus website. But I just want to go over a little bit of it here for you guys now. And, uh, their speech was, you know, as spirited as a graduation speech can be, but it still had a lot of the, uh, uh, a lot of the failings of many graduation speeches like it has the section where um, the speaker in this case, the speakers um, admit that they just th- that they just feel really old in front of all these, you know, exciting young people with Hannah saying I've got the full text of the speech in front of me, by the way, everyone <laughs> with Hannah saying when we graduated from college, believe it or not, we didn't even have email and we still called our friends on a landline and like David and Hannah, I feel like our. Like, smart, lively, funny people who, in the case of this speech, as with all graduation speeches, were hemmed in by the need to be both, like, as funny as you can pull off for a, a audience of, you know, 3,000 people who are completely unfamiliar with you and with whom you are completely unfamiliar. And then also the need to deliver actual life wisdom. And to their credit... They delivered some decent life wisdom in their speech, which was uh, called Nine Tweets and a Selfie. (laughs) Um, It was delivered in the format of Nine Tweets and a Selfie. Uh, And some of the tweets were like, good, like, and I like that they ended by stressing that... um, Well, something which I think is uncommon in graduation speeches, but is indisputably important, which is that one of the most important decisions you will make in your life uh, is one that is potentially coming up fairly soon in your life, which is not what job you will have or whether you will do good in the world or whether you will um, become a a revolution theologist, uh, but who you end up with, who will you spend your life with, uh, or whether you will spend your life with anyone at all. And I thought that was a nice close. but. On the other hand, then they took a selfie of them in front of the Ripon College audience, which was very poorly framed, <laughs> uh, and uh, I think sort of undercut their entire message.
0: I, I All right. I like critiquing the boss's speech on the show. That is good. Uh, I like what sounds like the formal innovation there. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to give one of these. How do, how? What would you say? It's a terrible literary format, which is why I feel I think you have to be a great writer in order to do it. When I think of great
2: commencement speeches, I think of the George Saunders speech, which is, I think, maybe right. last year or so, in yep. the last couple of years, and I can't remember what school he was speaking at, but it was a beautiful piece of writing that was that actually did contain a lot of life wisdom, but was somehow not sententious at all. David Foster Wallace's famous speech at Kenyon College, I think it was, is also a fantastic piece of writing. But it seems like they were aiming for something a little bit different than uh, let me give counsel to these young people. And maybe that was what made the counsel worthwhile.
0: I mean, I think the format that it, that the successful ones actually have the most in common with is a sermon, right? I mean, you're sitting there. It might be a Sunday morning You're supposed to deliver some anecdotes and then uh, convey some wisdom beyond it, right? Which is, Dan, you've gone to church more often than I have, but in my head, that's like the rough format of a sermon. But the people who are asked to give these speeches are the Christine Lagarde's of the world who don't have a lot of experience writing that. And so when you get an actual thinking writer who can kind of pull off the transition from story to transcendent moment, then you get something that has the same kind of elevation that a good sermon could deliver, but it, it that that's just that's a tricky mode to be writing
1: in. And I just wonder if like the students at George Saunders's graduation, if they recognized how great it was. Like for example, I bet you could take whatever the hell Seamus Heaney said to us and p- publish it as a you know eighty-five page book and sell like thousands of copies of it. I bet it was great. But I didn't get shit out of it. Like I got nothing out of it. And that's because of it's because there's so much else going on, as Dana says. And so did George Saunders's students know that what they were seeing was going to amazingly be eventually be a great YouTube clip?
2: Right, because something lives on the page doesn't mean it lived on the podium by any means. But I do think or that you can... Even
1: could... that it lives on the... That it dies on the podium doesn't mean that it can't live later as a viral video or book. Like, those. that's the format in which the commencement speech works now, well, not maybe, as a commencement speech.
0: maybe that can save it. Maybe those innovations in the format can attract people to it to do interesting things with it. I mean, one other commencement speech that at least had a vim and a point of view recently was Cheryl Span- Sandberg addressing the graduates at Barnard, in which... And I'm not actually sure of the chronology here. So she either uh, previewed or uh, re- retook her famous TED talk about leaning in and the ambition gap and, you know, all the ideas that have become familiar since her book came out. But they weren't quite as familiar in the culture then because it was several years ago when she gave the speech. And, yeah, you know, if you can attract people to giving the speeches with the notion that then there's an opportunity for that speech to live on and... Um, Say something about them and their career and not just disappear over the heads of, you know, sozzled, sunstrokey uh, people in, in cheap black robes, maybe the quality will be elevated.
1: Well, so that's a great question. So if it elevates the form enough that great writers might do it, do either of you have like a dream writer who you would actually pay to attend a commencement that had a commencement speech by?
2: Hmm. It's so hard to imagine her doing any sort of TED talk behind a podium, but Deborah Eisenberg, I'm sure, would come up with something completely oh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, <laughs> life
0: wisdom from Deborah Eisenberg, that's what I want. I would I was thinking Alice Monroe, which is which is a similar vein, I think.
1: Uh I'm I'm gonna just say that I would love Lydia Davis's because it would be tart and also it would be one minute long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the topic is commencement speeches. If you drive around over the next few weeks, you may catch one on a campus near you. Also, there are reams of them online now, and we'll post links to some of the ones we like best and least. I don't know if we can find that boomer one uh, at our show page, state.com/cululturefest. <laughs> slash culturefest. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we hear from our second sponsor. Dana, who is our sponsor this week?
2: This week, the Culture Gab Fest is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They have more than 100,000 books which you can play on any device including whatever you're hearing us on right now and they have a special offer for Culture Gab Fest listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up at our special URL that's audiblepodcast.com/culturefest. And so as I say they have over 100,000 titles to choose from but since we are now building our Culture Gab Fest bucket list of books that you must listen to before you die in order to be esteemed by Stephen Metcalf we had one <laughs> Dan that you recommended for the bucket list this week. What have you got?
1: Uh, In honor of our discussion of The Normal Heart, I'm going to recommend a book that actually came up organically in our conversation about The Normal Heart and the band played on uh, Randy Schultz's monumental, amazing work of investigative journalism about the first years of the AIDS crisis. Um, Schultz is one of the first... Uh, reporters to report on the crisis when almost no one else was writing about it. He interviewed literally everyone who had anything to do with the political fight, with the health fight, with the research fight, um, with the struggle over funding, um, and it's really an incredible work. It's on Audible, read by... um, Uh, Victor Bavine or Bavine I'm not sure how you pronounce his name Um, but uh, the book is great I mean it's encyclopedic but it's angry Um, the stuff that's in the normal heart the the whole gay men's health crisis rupture between uh, Kramer and everyone else is covered completely well it's a totally totally great book and a must read or listen for anyone who cares about what the 80s were actually like
0: it's so so good it's just a masterpiece I think It's like
1: unbelievably readable as well as being like impeccably researched and rewarded.
2: You know, throughout the entire Normal Heart, when they were telling the story of Larry Kramer's departure from gay men's health crisis from Larry Kramer's point of view, I was wanting exactly that. Some sort of history that was not so wrapped up with, you know, this this writer's and character's own what came across to me as narcissism. So I would be interested to read the Randy Schultz version. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give Audible a try and please use our URL so Audible knows you're signing up through the Culture Gap Fest. And that is audiblepodcast.com slash culture OK, back to the
0: show. For our final segment today, we're going to talk about the new 9-11 Museum, which just opened in New York. Dan Koyce went last week. Dan and I both just went this morning, so I think it's fair to say we're still processing the experience of a couple hours ago. The museum has come in for some praise and some controversy since it opened. Um, in particular, people have objected to the Fact of there being a gift shop on site and a gift shop that sold an America-shaped cheese plate, which we'll come to in a moment. But I think also there are questions about what it means to curate and memorialize an experience as searing uh, and shocking as the terrorist attack on nine eleven. So I think we should just start with our experiences. Dan, what did what did you make of the museum when you visited last week?
1: I mean, one thing that really struck me almost immediately upon getting there, and I don't know, other people who visited maybe have had similar experiences, is that so it's, a, it's currently it's very popular. Just open, there are big lines, and in fact, they have time tickets so that I got there early in the morning and then waited in line half an hour just to get a ticket to come back much later in the day. But you're standing in line for this thing um, that that by its own nature, I sort of didn't really actually want to be going to at all. Um, but then next to you in line, there's this other line, like a fast lane of other people who are just being escorted right up to the front and they get to go right in. And of course the natural human response to seeing someone else going faster than you in a line is, oh, that's not fair. I want to be in that line. But then I realize, oh, that's the line for all the people who lost people in 9 So actually I don't want to be in that line at all. But so that just was the first of any number of totally surreal and discomforting and, and weird Awful experiences of being in this museum. Which, honestly, my takeaway of it is, uh, I c- I cannot understand why anyone would ever want to go to this museum ever in a million years.
0: Do you know? <laughs> All right. So I'm not a rave review from Dan Boy. I'm laying it out there. <laughs> no, I agree with you about the fundamental weirdness of museumizing the place. I mean, the, the the first thing that happens after you get into the museum with your time ticket is that you go through security, which oh, God, the security. causes you to think about why there's such intense security on that site in particular and all the security lines you've ever stood in in the years since 9-11. Um, it, it's it's more than just going to the Met. It's a strange museum experience. Dana, what were you struck by this morning? Well, the
2: presence of security is something that struck me for sure. It's very noticeable, not just inside the museum, but in the, the two monuments outside the museum, which are essentially the footprint. These these opened a while ago, two years ago or so, but I had never seen them until today. The footprints of the towers with these, these long waterfalls, essentially like big square holes in the ground with waterfalls. It's completely surrounded by security. To me, there's there was a feeling you know, a slightly police state feeling from the moment you enter the grounds. And that in part is because this is still an area in construction, right? I mean, the Freedom Tower or whatever they're calling it now, the, the tall building that's replaced the World Trade Towers is, I think, still being finished. And there's certainly buildings in construction all around. And and people kind of waving you around traffic bollards and things like that. So there's a little bit of a feeling of anxiety before you even go in. And then something that struck me about the museum that I think is actually a strength of its design, but that I agree with Dan is a real downer for people going to see it, is that the more you get into the museum, the further you get underground. So there's no natural light. You're descending down this ramp past these projected pictures of... Um, projected reconstructions of the posters that people put up around New York in the days after 9-11 looking for so-and-so, you know, so you're already just descending into this space of grief. And by the time you get to the bottom, I don't know, I just felt like I was in a a lightless trap. There's, There's something very anxiety producing about the design of the museum, which is, you know, I think was maybe part of the plan, but does not seem to me like something that's going to be pulling tourists in. Although
0: it was packed.
2: With it tourists is.
0: and people wearing their cute, like crop top tourist outfits for their days in New York City. I mean, I had the moment this morning, I'm wearing bright red pants. Where I was like, should I not wear bright red pants to the 9-11 museum? And I was like, it's a museum. I can wear whatever I want to the museum. I These are my pants that are clean. I'm going to wear them. But it is, you know, you sort of, you find yourself checking out everybody else and wondering about their motives for being there. Because obviously they can be very personal, uh, you know, as personal as being a survivor of someone who was killed. Or, you know, more general, I lived in New York at the time and had my own various connections to it, uh, even though I didn't lose anybody in it. Um, And, you know, we're totally abstract people who are like, hey, I'm here from, you know, 5,000 miles away. Click. Take a picture of me in front of the waterfall. Click. Take me a picture of me in front of One World Trade. Click. Here I am underground trying to understand this thing. And I don't, I don't know, Dan, I don't begrudge them trying to understand what it was like. I don't think I would necessarily... I don't know. I don't know if I would go. I think if I were in Germany, I would probably...
1: If you were in Germany, you sure, you would go to Auschwitz, but that was 70 years ago. I feel like the, my main argument with the existence of the museum is that simply it feels to me and, and not to pull out an old hoary phrase, but it feels too soon to museumize this specific event and to do it in the actual place where it happened. Like This is a museum that I feel like Should exist 50 years from now so that people, so that future generations will have a sense of what went on, but also so that it can be more easily and comprehensively contextualized and dealt with in a way that isn't beholden to any number of different, very legitimate and deserving interest groups who have specific interests in the way that this, that the information in this museum is presented. Like the act of museumizing something renders it. Historical you're essentially saying that what we have to learn from this is uh, is, is historical information, not that it, and I don't know that it felt like an appropriate way to deal with the very sharp grief and terror and horror that is still associated with this event for almost everyone who is in that museum.
2: Yeah, I think a key word that you just used, Dan, was context. And I think it's something that this museum lacks in some important ways and provides in others. But let's talk about what actually happens when you descend down into this pit that is essentially the the foundation of the original building.
0: One of the most striking moments actually is where um, there's a placard that says here in this very spot that you were standing between you and the facing wall is where uh, the bomb exploded in the garage of the World Trade Center in 1993. This is the actual site underground of that explosion. I found that to be one of the most startling and and striking situating moments as you start to walk down this ramp and you see, you know, some of the columns that were used in the building's construction. You see the slurry wall that was not destroyed on the day of the attacks. Um, y- you begin to get a sense of the scope and the space underground.
1: I also found those... Interesting, I found the, those, the survivor stairs that they've transported down totally fascinating to see and to visualize. But at the same time, that was part of what in the end struck me as the problematic part. The problematic issue with this museum is that a substantial – basically half the museum underneath the footprint of one tower is devoted to memorializing the victims. And that part is – beautiful and extremely well done and very touching and very moving. It has individual audio clips for each one of the victims collected from family or friends. It has some artifacts, uh, from people, whether things that were donated by their family that just represented their lives or things that were actually found in the wreckage, um, to represent these people. So that's one half. But then the other half is a, a extremely well done, high quality, interactive museum exhibit that is meant to recreate what September eleventh was like on a moment by moment basis, as it was lived by all the people who lived through it, and that to me is like maddening in how in how in how manipulative it is and how how misguided an impulse I feel like it is. you know I feel like to go to descend into that second section, the nine eleven moment by moment section. I mean, it was, I was miserable the entire time, and maybe I should have been miserable. I guess I should have been miserable, but I don't know that that is the way that anyone is going to get the most out of this kind of experience. And so, you know, being in a museum space that had little alcoves you could go into if you had the courage to watch people jump from the towers.
2: I did not go in that alcove. Could you go Uh, in that alcove,
1: Julia? I went in that alcove, but I could not go in the alcove that had audio recordings of people calling from the top of the burning building who could not get out and were leaving voicemail messages for their wives. I couldn't go in that alcove. But so to be in the space and then to look over to one side and see that as an architectural feature of this museum exhibit, there are pillars filled with Kleenexes. Like, that just drove me insane and made me so unhappy. And when I got on the escalator to get up out of this space and they were playing Amazing Grace over the speakers as I went up the escalator I realized that like my whole body was completely tensed up and one of my arms like had severe muscle pain from where I was like gripping my bag with an iron grip the entire time and so I guess in a way, all of this is appropriate. I should feel this way about nine eleven, but I already did feel this way about nine eleven. I don't know anyone who doesn't feel this way about nine eleven, and I had no connection to it whatsoever. And so, the idea of someone, for example, who who was caught up in this event or who lost a loved one in this event strikes me as as just the most awful, terrible thing I can imagine. And I know that they say it's been specifically designed not to create trauma and survivors, um, but uh, how do they know? I mean, Steve Kandel's piece in BuzzFeed, which I'm sure you guys have read, suggested that it's a lot more complicated uh, for many uh, survivors and the, the families of many victims than any one museum could possibly encompass.
0: Somehow your vehemence about this museum is is launching in me a feeling of wanting to defend the museum. And I'm not far enough away from the experience of having gone to visit it yet to to fully articulate this, but... I felt that there should be something to memorialize what that day was like. Everyone experienced it in different ways. The people visiting from 5,000 miles away experienced it very remotely. It was something New York went through. It was something that people around the world Saw and that caused them to to connect with this city. And it makes sense that they would want to come here and sort of understand it more closely. And I think that the museum is very sensitive about the fact that the day has many meanings for many people. It's all very carefully labeled. They're very, they give you a sense of what you're going to get into before you get into it, so that if you feel like you don't want to go into the alcove of death, you don't have to go into the alcove of death. Um, I mean, it's all, it's one gigantic alcove of death, but the alcove of seeing images of people jumping from the buildings in particular, I'm referring to. There's there's one exhibit in particular called Reflections on 9-11, I think, where you go in and you can see people ranging from, you know, Giuliani to various people working in the intelligence community to survivors and others responding to an array of questions about 9-11 and its impact on all of us. Um, and I think it's an exhibit they're going to keep updating over time. They also allow you to go into a booth and record your own responses to some of these questions. And that struck me as a way to deal with the fact that, you know, this isn't history yet or it's it's at a funny moment of being between history and personal lived experience. Um, And I I basically thought the museum was very well done. I don't think I would have gone if I hadn't if it weren't for this segment, but I thought it was very well done.
1: I agree that it is well done, but that doesn't mean that I think it should exist. Like and so you're right that it does there are many points in the museum where sort of the, you're, a, a visitor's point of entry to the museum is this notion not of the lived experience of being in the middle of 9-11, but of the way that almost everyone else on earth experienced it, right? There's, you walk down the ramp and you get video of an audio of people saying, oh, I was, I woke up in Melbourne and it was on the news, or my family called me and said, turn on the TV or whatever. And it's everyone talking about what their experiences were and uh, of witnessing this event. And I sort of, Reject the notion that this matters. Like, I don't think that my experience of 9-11, for example, to pick a random person out of thin air, should matter even a tiny bit be compared to the experiences of the people who are actually killed there. I think it I think that making a museum that is essentially designed to, to raise my experiences to the level of Oh, this was something that we all experienced together is like sort of fundamentally insulting to what was the ultimate horror of 9-11, which was that it was the end for all these people in a way that they never could have imagined. And everything else I feel like is essentially extraneous to that. And that's why, to my mind, I agree with you that something needs to be there, but that something is there. It's the memorials, which are beautiful and simple and do what. That space should do right now, a mere 13 years after this happened, which is memorialize the dead. 50 years from now, I will be, you know, not delighted, but I will grudgingly accept that a museum is there to interpret those events and to contextualize them for the world. But right now it feels like it's just like not a necessary thing.
2: Yeah, and I would agree with you that there's a very sharp bifurcation between how I experienced the the memoriam section, which is also physically located quite far from the, you know, this scary day of nine eleven section. And you can definitely choose which which of the two or if you want to do both things. But the memoriam seemed to be constructed. For the specific reason of, I mean, it was a lot like those wonderful New York Times profiles at the time where where you would hear a little bit about each person's life. There's these great touchscreen tables where you can access any person's profile and and their bio and you can actually play it in the big room. If you wanted to go and memorialize a certain person, you can press a button on this touchscreen table and send their little mini movie profile to a big collective room where a lot of people can watch it. That seemed like a place where collective mourning was being thought through and was happening. What was happening in this other room that I'm calling the 9-11 room that just recreated the events of that morning on timelines and with the phone calls and all of that. It kind of reminded me of the Paul Greengrass film, United 93. Did you guys see that movie?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which is just all about the f- the flight that went down near Shanksville, Pennsylvania and essentially recreating minute by minute what we know about that flight. And, and this room seemed to have a very similar uh, goal, which was to essentially put you back, get back somehow to the moment when you didn't know 9-11 was going to happen. And then the confusion of sort of putting together what was happening. Was it a terrorist attack? Was it an accidental plane crash? All of that. And I guess I'm with Dan on not quite knowing Why we obsessively must return to that moment of seeing, for example, Matt Lauer on the Today Show, this is on one of the video screens, suddenly interrupting an interview with someone to say planes have crashed into the World Trade Center. The the obsession with going back to this moment of kind of a a fearful event happening that we must all contextualize and put together seems like a strange collective anxiety to, to try to put in place through a museum display.
1: That's the. I mean, that is the way museums work now, and it makes perfect sense for something that was 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago because then the goal of the museum is to make us understand what this thing was like that we otherwise can't imagine. But we can imagine this. In fact, it happened to us.
0: But, Dan, it can happen. you can imagine it because it happened to you because you're an American living in this particular time and place. If you were a random Danish guy or someone from, like— southern China and you happen to be in New York, why wouldn't you want to understand this pivotal event in American history through some experience more interpretive than the memorial pools? I will say this is also the first time I've been to the site since 9-11. And those pools are one of the most beautiful memorials I've ever seen. I mean, they, they, they evoke very closely the Vietnam Memorial. And I agree that the Vietnam Memorial on the Washington Mall would be sullied if there were a gigantic blinking museum next to it with 100 screens. So maybe your argument has some sense to it, Dan. But I, I, I also felt. I mean, I. You know, so here is my nine eleven story, which pales in comparison to a lot of the ones I encountered this morning. But my uncle worked at Eurobrokers, and he was in the building in nineteen ninety three, and he was in the building when the planes hit, and he got out safely, and then he died some years later of cancer. So I am in the funny position of mourning someone who survived, but mourning him for something different. Uh, and for me, I spent actually more time in the nine eleven, you know, theme park part of the. Museum than I did in the in the uh, memorium section. It was interesting. It was interesting to relive that morning to think about what it was like for him to be walking down those stairs. To think about, you know, all the Eurobrookers guys who were lost. I mean, he, for him and and my aunt, the months after nine eleven were like the sections we saw in the normal heart, where they just went to funerals all the time. And it's funny, my heart is racing talking about this actually. It's not something I would have gone back to on my own, but it provided a way to reconnect with this person and his experience there. And I don't know, I was glad to spend the morning thinking of him. Um, It's not how I would have chosen to do it. It's obviously a disconnected story. But I guess, Dan, I don't understand why you're the arbiter of when this museum gets to exist, right? Like, I'm this, not, they, <laughs> <obviously>.
2: <laughs> you know, but, but your argument is like, it's shut too, it down. Kois
0: <laughs> doesn't like it. <laughs> it's too soon. 50 years would be a fine time to do it. And, you know, I think I think It's been done very sensitively. You don't have to go. Nobody has to go. But I think it's been done basically as sensitively as you could do it. And we'll get to the gift shop in a moment, which is maybe where it was not as sensitive as it could have been. But I don't begrudge this museum for existing. Um, All right. We got to hit the gift shop before we go. Exit through the gift shop (laughs) before we bring this long segment to a close. Um, But Dan, you and I, I think both went to the gift shop. What did you make of the gift
1: shop? Are you horrified that there's a gift shop at this museum? And not not any more horrified than I am, than I am that there's a museum, and to me that is sort of like the the fundamental issue with people who are like wildly objecting to the gift shop while still feeling that the museum is the right and proper thing to do. But the but if you build a big, beautiful, complicated, multidisciplinary museum interpreting these events you got to run it. I mean, the thing apparently has an operating budget of like $60 million a year and that money doesn't fall from the sky. And so if you have to have a museum, you then are resigning yourself to all the shit you have to do to have a museum. You have to have a gift shop with bullshit in it. You have to have receptions with cocktails in them. You have to charge $24 to get in. Like Those are the things you have to do to run a super expensive museum. So if like so being at one with the museum but enraged about the gift shop, I feel like is a logically tenuous position.
0: I found a lot of things in the gift shop to be tacky and stupid, but I'd you know, whatever. If it floats your boat to buy like a memorial votive <laughs> candle that that is shaped in the shape of the World Trade Center girders. I mean, I don't know I'm not gonna put those on my dining table. I I, I Candles obviously have a context of mourning and vigil, whatever. You had to start thinking about this about every object in the store and it just including the
1: dog vest.
0: Including the dog vest. There's also some just like pretty flowy scarves with stars on them, like sort of hipster patriotism. They're kind of right. they're not in rigid regimented lines. They're kind of like spattered around artistically on the scarf. It's totally a scarf that I would like buy for ten bucks on Canal Street. But I'm <laughs> not gonna buy it in the store. <laughs> um and it's recast as hipster patriotism. I I I don't know. I, I agree with you, Dan, that anybody who doesn't object to the museum should also not object too much to the store. It's obviously Great for a blog post objecting to an America shaped cheese plate, but, um,
2: you know. It's kind of too late to object to the commercialization of 9/11 because it happened within days of the event. I mean, I just don't. You guys remember how this kind of pall of just just flag based patriotism descended over the entire country days after? And it was sort of you know the the way that collectively people dealt with trauma was to create flag
0: covered crap and sell it to each other.
1: I wish there had been a room at the museum that was just all the flag covered crap. Like that would have been a great there was some um,
0: there were a little there was a little bit there were a few moments where they showed how how there was a wall of flag. Covered crap, which I enjoyed looking at, insofar Good. as I enjoyed anything at the 9 11 Museum. All
1: Just right. Just to say, not at all.
0: All right. Well, we were discussing the new 9 11 Museum in New York. You can come to New York and check it out if you want to disregard Dan Coyce's advice. Um, another thing that you should definitely do, no matter where you are listening to us, is read the piece by Steve Kendall on BuzzFeed in which he talks about. Uh, his sister who died in 9-11 and his family's ambivalence about participating with the other families and all of the kind of publicized mourning. Um, and he visits the museum and writes very eloquently about his experiences there. And he also touches on one other controversy we didn't get to in this segment, which is the fact that some of the unidentified uh, remains found on site are also in the museum in a private place that only families can go to. But um, he, he touches on that controversy as well. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we endorse. Dana, what have you got to endorse today?
2: I'm going to endorse something really lighthearted and fun because this really was just such a grief sandwich of a show. And it was (laughs) we're sorry for anyone who was traumatized and now needs to go into therapy because of this, this week's podcast. I'm going to endorse Penciltopia, which is this group that teaches children to do stop motion animation. I learned about Penciltopia because they move from school to co- school to school. They do different after-school programs. I think you can also take private lessons through them. I'm pretty sure it's a it's a countrywide thing, and my daughter's school had a Penciltopia class this year that she participated in, and she learned to do claymation, and we just got to go see the screening of all the kids' claymation movies. They're incredibly delightful and fun, and you can go to the Penciltopia website and look at, I don't think my daughter's class is up there yet, but you can look at years' worth of children's stop-motion animation and claymation videos, and they're completely
0: fun. So go to Penciltopia dot blogspot.com to look at some of those. That sounds great. I thought Penciltopia was going to be another June Thomas approved pencil podcast, but <laughs> I will accept a stop
1: motion animation class as well. <laughs> the
0: war of the pencil Podcasts, the ratings war is huge. <laughs> Dan, uh, do you have an endorsement for us today?
1: I do. I have two joint endorsements. Um, the first is an essay uh, in the new issue of The Common, which is a literary journal based in Amherst. The essay is called Bud. It's by a writer named Nalini Jones. It is a very sad and sweet essay about jones's mostly epistolary friendship with an unnamed american folk musician uh it's made up mostly of the letters that he censored through his disappointing career which tapers off because of his alcoholism and it ends with his death in 2011 and then by design because the essay is sort of very cannily written to allow an able googler to eventually figure it out i'm going to recommend standing eight which is an album by american folk musician bill morrissey who died in 2011. Um, The album is from 1989. It's generally considered by many critics and by the essay to be his best. Uh, I'd never heard of him before and never listened to his music, but it is really lovely. Um, And I especially loved listening to it um, and hearing his voice after sort of imagining it on multiple levels over the course of that essay. Um, But it's also a very lovely uh, folk album all on its own.
0: That sounds super fascinating. I'm going to check that out. Is the common. I haven't read the common much, but I've seen them. They are. It's a beautifully designed magazine. Should I be reading it as well as looking at
1: it? It's very good. And it's like the most handsome literary journal around for sure. And this piece is really nice. You can read the whole thing online so you can check it out. All right. I will. Julia, what are you endorsing today?
0: Dan, my endorsement today uh, was inspired by you in a way. It is a book that I first read in the Slate book review. Frankly, I read about it like 18 months ago, I think, when it came out and you published a piece reviewing it. And then I only got around to reading it this weekend. But it, the book is Wild by Cheryl Strayed. It's oh. her memoir of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail while woefully unprepared for doing so in the mid-90s. And it is just so gripping. I've had one of those stretches. We were had one of those stretches for a few months where no book truly grabs you and you kind of don't finish them and... You, you feel unmoored by your inability to get deeply into a written text.
1: Yep. When you're a book editor, you have stretches like that, like every week.
0: I thought every week you fell in love with a new gem to share with our
1: readers. Sure. Well, that's what breaks me out of it.
0: Anyway, I had that feeling, finally, that joyous feeling of falling in love with reading again, where I just could not put this book down. I wanted to ignore everything in my life, to just consume word after word of it. I was gobbling it up. Um And anyway, highly recommend it. I'm sure you've heard about it or seen it kicking around on your friends' coffee tables. But if you haven't yet, pick it up and actually read the thing. It's great. Well, that's our show. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, guys. I promise next time we invite you on, we can talk about, like, muffins and tiddlywinks.
2: Yeah, it's going to be all giggles all the time next time you come on.
1: I hate tiddlywinks and think that they should not exist.
0: <laughs>
2: he objects to tiddlywinks on a <laughs> How moral How
0: dare basis. you? <laughs> <laughs> How dare you tittle? How dare you wink? You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer this week is Chris Wade, the executive producer of Slate podcast is andy bowers and in the final spot of luxury is our intern anna sheckman who i'm highlighting this week because she is a cruciverbalist, which means she makes crossword puzzles and she is having a crossword puzzle in the new york times this coming thursday so (gasps) check it out see if you can uh match her mental metal all right thank you so much for listening and uh we'll see you next week